Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Now, at this very moment, a war of aggression is being waged by the Putin regime against Ukraine, a war which is as criminal as it is unjust. Now, this is a war with no justification, despite the propaganda claims of the Kremlin and its allies, either from the vantage point of self-defense, morality, whichever vantage point you happen to choose. Now, the whole world is watching and can see criminal acts being committed against the civilian population of Ukraine. I should warn some of obviously the footage we're going to show is very, very distressing, but the reality of war should not be hidden. And I should also say that miraculously, the driver of that car actually did survive. That was not the case uh, for this, uh, for the driver of an ambulance uh, who was killed by the Russian army. I should explain that was the paramedic who did survive. Um, These are atrocities being committed, of course, by Russia's army. Now, there have been protests across the world, uh, including in London. And in Estonia, which is a country which has its own reasons to fear, of course, aggression from Russia. Now, there have also been protests in Russia, very courageous protests, because there have been mass arrests of protesters. Let's have a little look. Now, we've got two fantastic guests to talk us through exactly what's happening. And one of the things we want to look at is, is, has this war backfired? Is it going as well as Putin expected uh, in terms of resistance from within Ukraine, but also public opinion in Russia to the degree that can be quantified? That's problematic for reasons that our first guest very shortly will explain. As ever, uh, thank you so much, of course, for watching. If you're watching, do click the YouTube link and press like press subscribe, leave comments. Uh, We'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, And you can support us, a whole team on patreon.com forward slash Owen Jones 84. We've just got a new documentary out, thanks to you, about a 
bin strike against the Labour Council as it happens in Coventry and the wider significance during a cost of living crisis here in Britain. Obviously, there was a much bigger news story going on, which we're covering today, but our coverage of other issues uh, continues nonetheless. Um, you can also listen, of course, on the podcast. You may be listening on the podcast, so you don't need me to explain this. But if you are, then if you're not, then you can, of course, uh, look up the Aaron Jones podcast and uh, leave a review if you feel so well inclined. Now, we're going to start by talking to our first brilliant guest. who We're very lucky to have live from St. Petersburg, Ilya Matviv, who is a researcher, uh, an anti-war activist, a, a dissident. And we're very lucky to have, just to explain for lots of reasons, Ilya. Uh, we had a bit of technical problems originally trying to talk to Ilya because the Russian authorities have apparently blocked the software we are using, uh, but Ilya has managed to get through using a VPN. Uh, so firstly, Ilya, just explain that because various websites are being blocked in Russia at the moment. Is that, is that right? Uh, <clears throat> yes, it's true. And uh, ironically, uh, my VPN connected to the near, nearest country, uh, to Russia, and this country is Ukraine. So technically, it's okay. a Ukrainian IP address that I'm using right now to to use this software. So I don't really know why it happens. I never heard of this platform that we're using. Nevertheless, uh, using VPN immediately solved the problem. So well, the Russian the Russian authorities have clearly heard of Streamyard, which is one of the main ways, of course, we are able to communicate people here on on videos, bloggers, and so on. Uh, so that's probably why. Now, just to begin with. Now, we've seen protests in Russia. We've also seen, I suppose, maybe some unexpected uh, dissent. Let's have a look at this, for example, from the leading sport, Russian sports player, Andrei Rublev. Two sets, but Rublev said not so fast. And he might just have a message, Andrei Rublev. So he wrote, no war, please, there. More, more interestingly, I thought, the daughter of the Kremlin press secretary posted on Instagram, no to war. That was swiftly deleted, presumably after a phone call. Ilya, what, what's your sense? Is it possible to work out? I mean, you know, public opinion in Russia at the moment. Has Putin gambled too much on there being support within Russia? Where do you think Russian opinion is at? Right, so... Obviously, it's hard to say, but I don't see any enthusiasm for this war in any section of the Russian population. I see many public figures that were previously um, reluctant to criticize the Kremlin, you know, speaking out against the war. And uh, opinion polls, as suspect as they are in authoritarian regimes, uh, demonstrate that there is no overwhelming support for war. So the latest opinion poll from Levada Center, which is an independent polling agency in Russia, demonstrated that um, 45% of respondents supported the recognition of these people's republics in Donbass, and uh, 40% didn't. And uh, consequently, it's not even a majority. Uh, of Russians who support this recognition. And uh, many people actually thought that recognition of those republics will not lead to war. So I don't have any specific numbers of Russians uh, supporting the war itself. And I think that uh, any polling will be um, um, sort of blocked on this. We will not know the numbers. But my suspicion is that uh, 
it's not even a majority that currently supports this war because uh, this is just stark images of Russia bombing uh, Ukrainian cities and uh, even those who are very loyal to, to the Kremlin will not support this. So this is my impression. Um, Ilya, in terms of why this war has happened, uh, you know, I, I scanned back and this has been mentioned not enough, in my opinion, this was at a time when many Western countries were embracing Putin. A lot of this, of course, gets mem- put in a memory hole and forgotten. Uh, but he came to war- he came to power in 1999 as a protege of Boris Yeltsin. Um, but he, at the time in the opinion polls, Vladimir Putin was an unknown. People didn't know about him. And then came a war in Chechnya. Um, launched, I have to say, after a series of terrorist attacks, supposedly on apartments, which some actually suggest the Russian state could have been directly complicit in. Do you think, that in the same way that war in Chechnya was, in, was crucial back in 1999, that, you know, Putinism was consummated in the ruins of Grozny, is it possible this war is partly to do with flagging domestic support for Putin in Russia? Right, so... Mm, there is a theory that uh, that has this thesis that uh, Russian foreign aggression is connected to domestic legitimacy, but I think in this particular case it's uh, too much of a gamble. So uh, it's not like every act of foreign aggression would be automatically supported by uh, Russian people. Furthermore, I think that uh, Putin actually consults with uh, different, you know, sections within his apparatus, within the government, and those who are responsible for war are different people from those who are responsible for domestic politics. So, uh, I mean, uh, people who are responsible for the domestic situation, they will not suggest a war. And those who are responsible for war, they don't care about domestic legitimacy. They care about uh, different things, right? So I think that ultimately it's not so simple. It's not like uh, wars are started to prop up legitimacy because this particular war is extremely destabilizing for for the political system in russia uh no clear support from the elite so elites are mostly silent and i don't see any enthusiasm among economic elites obviously so the oligarchs no clear support from the population so it's too much of a gamble in terms of, I should say as well, people are putting three questions on Super Chat. And if you want to put questions to Ilya, do you Super Chat? And we will put them to him and also name people at the end to thank you for your support. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because a lot of, I think, very simplistic well, and very wrong-headed Western analysis keep trying to portray him as a kind of neo-Soviet leader. And it was interesting, the speech he did uh, on national television last week, paving the, the kind of grounds, the rationale for the current invasion of Ukraine very much defined himself against the Soviet Union. He was ranting about Lenin and the Bolsheviks, that Lenin created Ukraine. Is this more of a kind of 19th century Russian chauvinist project? Is it more, or was that itself a simplistic kind of comparison? Right. So I think uh, Putin's speeches are really important. And uh, it's not just a smokescreen. It's really what uh, Putin thinks and what a huge part of Russian political establishment thinks. And uh, in light of these speeches and in light of this war itself, we as uh, you know, political scientists, social scientists analyzing Russia, we had to rethink our own 
conception of uh, what what is uh, you know the driving force in the Russian political regime. And previously, we thought that it's about NATO, it's about perceived uh, threats, so it's about uh, confrontation with the West. But these particular speeches point out that it's more than that. It's also about uh, nationalism. It's about imperial nationalism. It's about uh, the concepts like historic Russia that Putin used. And uh, this concept refers to not to the Soviet Union, but to the Russian Empire. And apparently uh, there is some kind of sense of historic mission to restore this uh, historic Russia, which uh, basically covers Ukrainian territory and Ukraine itself is uh, sort of, uh, you know, historic mistake, as, as, Putin, as Putin said. And uh, he, his own logic is that uh, we need to restore historic Russia by conquering Ukraine. So it is nationalism, it is colonialism, and it is imperialism as uh, ideological concepts that really drive uh, Russian foreign policy right now. And this was perhaps uh, uh, something that uh, Russia analysts did not fully uh, anticipate the scale of uh, fanaticism in, you know, believing and sticking to these nationalist convictions among the Russian elites. So we thought that these people were quite cynical. They don't believe in anything. They believe in money. But, uh, I mean, they are ready to stake everything on this operation, which I can only explain in terms of uh, nationalist, imperialist ideology. Right. And when I thought about this, uh, I understood that it's not such a rare thing in the world. So if we look at neoconservatives in the United States, for instance, we also see a sort of imperial ideology that trumps rational interests. And the same thing, I mean, invasion of Iraq, for instance, and the same thing we see in Russia. So this is my opinion. This is my assessment right now. It's imperialism as an idea that is driving what is happening. It's, it's not madness. It's not some kind of delusion on Putin's side. I mean, it is delusional, but it's not like a, a psychological diagnosis. It's an idea. Imperialism is an idea. And nationalism is an idea. I'm, I'm glad you raised those parallels because there's been quite a lot of, I would say, overtly racist commentary in the Western media, which is along the lines of this is terrible because it's happening to, to, to Europeans. When obviously yes. we can look at Western wars of aggression, uh, for example, in Iraq, uh, and people regard this as what about and trying to, but actually it's about being consistent. It's about having a yes. consistent opposition to imperialism and the consequences of it. In terms of Russian media coverage, what's the kind of gist at the moment? Is the kind of portrayal of the mo- that this is going, that the war is going well? I mean, obviously, yes. So yeah, it's, I uh, imagine so. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's wartime propaganda. So uh, I wouldn't call it news, first of all. So from official sources, you, you have literally zero confidence in, in the truthfulness of what they're saying. And uh, my impression is that um, they don't want to create some kind of huge patriotic mobilization. What they want to do is to sort of try to calm things down, not emphasize the losses, not because officially Russia didn't lose a single soldier in this war. So officially, not a single casualty was reported currently. So Ukrainian side claims thousands of casualties of Russian soldiers. So Russia claims zero casualties, right? So the main 
thrust of uh, TV coverage and official coverage is that it's going well, it's going steady. So, uh, and, and they just try to censor most uh, horrific things that are happening in Ukraine right now, right now. So the idea is to isolate Russian citizens from the reality of this war. So this is, this is what's happening, I think, because the reality is so, I mean, scary and horrible that uh, even people who support the regime full-heartedly will, uh, will, will just be demoralized and lose any belief in what's going on. So, yeah. Now, obviously, as you explained, there is a greater Russian chauvinistic imperialist ideology which is driving mm-hmm. this. So what I'm going to say now, just to avoid some very angry people screaming, is not it's not apologism, very, just to be clear. But I'm interested in what Putinism is able to tap into within Russian society. And is it the case that the devastation of Russian society, for example, shock therapy, uh, the, the economic shock therapy that Russia went through, and I suppose what, what felt to many Russians like national humiliation, that is something that Putinism has been able to exploit. And this is one side effect. I mean... To some extent, this is a legitimate argument. And certainly in 2014, when Crimea was annexed, there was a genuine enthusiasm among the population. And there was a lot of feeling of, you know, vindication when this happens. So Russia suffered so much. Russia lost so much. And finally, we have some victories. Finally, we have some historic breakthroughs. And the annexation of Crimea was really interpreted by the majority of the population as a kind of a breakthrough, a kind of a huge, huge success, right? So to some extent, uh, this is true. But what's going on now does not fit into this theory because this is just too extreme. I mean, yes, Russians might feel humiliated for for the 90s, for the collapse of the country in the 90s, for all these troubles that we've gone through. But uh, supporting the aggression on Ukraine is too much, even for people who feel like this. So uh, in my opinion, there is a disconnect between imperialism of uh, the ruling circle and uh, the feelings of ordinary Russians right now. Because like I said, I don't see any enthusiasm at the current moment. It's not Crimea. It's a completely different thing. I mean, people are ready to cheer for Crimea, but people are not ready to cheer on uh, Kiev being bombed, right? So... In terms of the likely economic and then political consequences, because obviously we're looking at Russia being ejected from SWIFT, uh, there are apparently runs on Russian banks, the ruble could just collapse. Um, But but at the same time, the regime has done its best to try and shield itself from sanctions, building up, for example, big foreign exchange reserves since 2014. Uh, Also, China could could help in that regard so i'm wondering the reason i ask is there is a history of course in russia of wars going badly and rebounding badly on the governing regime in 1905 when russia was defeated by japan you had the 1905 revolution i think everyone's aware of the 1917 revolution which obviously took place in the context of world war one so do you think i mean if it goes badly and these economic effects um with a war which isn't actually that popular could that spell trouble serious trouble for Putin's regime. Yes. I mean, it's impossible to predict anything with certainty because no one predicted this war, for instance. I mean, very few people actually believed that the war on this scale is going to happen. But uh, it is possible, it is plausible 
and uh, Russian economic elite and actually most parts of the political elite are very integrated into the global economy. So they have assets there. They have, uh, you know, they, they take loans on international financial markets and uh, complete, you know, disintegration from the global economy uh, is going to hurt. So tensions at the top are very possible. I'm sure that there are tensions at the top right now. And uh, an important thing was that just a day after this whole thing started, uh, Putin met with the oligarchs, with biggest businessmen. And uh, it was like a combination of uh, threats and <laughs> reassuring words. So on the one hand, he sort of demanded that they have to stick to the patriotic line. On the other hand, he promised them support and all kinds of uh, subsidies and uh, making them comfortable. So to me, this uh, indicates a simple thing that Putin cares very much about the opinion of uh, the biggest businessmen, the billionaires in Russia. It's an illusion that they don't have any power at all. They do have some power and uh, uh, the Kremlin doesn't want them to be unhappy. So that's a serious potential source of uh, tension. And in general, I mean, we are on uncharted territory. We don't know so what, what this spells for the regime because a European war, an attack on a huge European country, it's completely unprecedented. So I don't know how our regime will react to this. It's unpredictable at the moment. Finally, we've got just a couple of final quick questions. Tad Campwell says, what are the chances that images of burning tanks and captured soldiers filter through to the wider population who get their news, as so-called news, as you put it, from from TV? And I'm also interested, is there any prospect, you're someone on the left, You, I think it's fair to say in an embattled position within Russia, including within the those who dissent from the regime, mm-hmm. is there any prospects of progressive opposition even vaguely leftish opposition emerging so just those two quick questions well not i mean as, as quickly as you can of course but yeah right so the first question i would say that it's possible because uh, so one thing a lot of people including i mean older people including people outside of moscow and petersburg use is uh, messaging apps like whatsapp and uh, they tend to send each other sort of videos and photos uh, on whatsapp and uh, uh, images of you know burning tanks and such they will spread on these messaging platforms this is why i suspect that whatsapp could be completely blocked in russia because this is one way of spreading uh, information spreading photos and uh, videos among the russian public uh, so uh, the second question uh, what what was the second question? Could it was about whether kind of any progressive opposition could emerge. Yeah, so, I mean, I even forgot the question because it's so hard to think about this right now. So, so actually, I thought about this today that, uh, you know, there were times that me as, as a leftist and my comrades, my friends, we were capable of imagining some kind of progressive change in Russia, some kind of progressive future, you know, social demands being realized and maybe even a social democratic party, a left social democratic party uh, attaining power in Russia. But now even thinking about this seems impossible. So it's impossible to imagine any kind of progressive future right now. And this is extremely painful because, uh, so I remember myself being able, you know, to dream about this and uh, even see some positive signs in the Russian reality. But now I see nothing except uh, the war, which consumes everything, 
it consumes Russian future. And this is perhaps the biggest problem for the Russian regime, because you cannot imagine a future in this country. So what's going to happen? What's going to happen to ordinary Russians? So, yes, right now they might explain what's going on to themselves. Uh, so we have we need to do this. We need to confront the West. We need to protect Donbass somehow by starting a war. OK, now this is what they say to each other. But what about looking forward? What's going to happen in a month, in a year, in 10 years? What kind of future does Russia have? So it's impossible to think about this. And this is very painful to me as, you know, as an activist, as a, uh, a researcher who is committed to a better future for Russia, as a patriot of Russia. So it hurts me to not see the future, you know, for this country. So, yeah. Well, Ilya, huge solidarity. We really appreciate it. Uh, we managed to obviously evade the attempts by the Russian authorities to stop you essentially from speaking to us. Uh, yeah. But we, despite, it's not, you know, it's often important that we speak truthfully and honestly, even when that truth happens to be pretty bleak. Uh, but we really, you know, I hugely admire the courage and resilience of someone like yourself who uh, is fighting for a different sort of Russia, which, however remote it currently seems, I'm sure, given the dedication yeah. of people like yourself, one day will emerge. We've got to, of course, maintain that optimism. Um, Optimism of the will, pessimism of, pessimism the, of the intellect. Yes. Amen. Thank you, Gramsci. Um, but honestly, big, big honor, Ilya. Take care of yourself and solidarity. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's a big honor. Thank you. Um, we're very lucky, of course, to have Ilya joining us. And it is very courageous in Putin's Russia. There were people being arrested. And there's also, obviously, a pretty grim history of those who oppose Putin who uh, have suffered terrible fates and, obviously, general persecution. It's just fantastic that we're able despite the, the attempt to block him from speaking to us that he was able to speak so candidly we're now, uh, before i bring in our next guest uh if you're watching live again as ever just press the youtube link press like subscribe if you're not watching live leave a comment below the line i always read through the comments they're a mixed bag some of them are passionate let's just say in various different directions but it's always good to engage with people. Um, so do, as I said, press press like and subscribe, and I will read out uh, people's super chats as well. Uh, let's bring in the fantastic emeritus professor of peace studies, uh, Paul Rogers, who, again, last time we had him on, we were talking about Afghanistan. Uh, I, I'm not sure how he felt about it, but I just spoke about how, as a teenager uh, at a sixth form college in Stockport, uh, we studied Paul's work and it had a very big impact on me and my own interest in international affairs. So thanks for that, Paul. I appreciate it. Um, it's good to see you, by the way. Uh, let's just start. So I just wanted to begin. How it's very difficult to see through, use the cliche, the fog of war. I mean, there are some suggest indications this isn't actually going very well for Russia, that Ukrainian resistance is tougher than expected. Their progress, they haven't taken any major cities. U.S. intelligence had thought the government of Ukraine, the legitimately elected government of Ukraine, would collapse quickly, and it hasn't. What do you think? It is very difficult to say. I couldn't agree with you. We really do have the fog of war at the present time. Drawing it all together and trying to compare it with conflicts which are even broadly similar, I think there do seem to be problems developing for the Putin regime. Uh, normally, what... If I can use the term normal, it's a horrible word to use when you're talking about people getting killed and war started. But the reality is, if you have this kind of operation, um, 
the belligerents will go in hard. I mean, you remember the shock and awe uh, in, in the case of Iraq, both in 91 and 2003. You go in very hard with your most effective forces, your special forces and the rest, and you try to achieve a real shock for a particular system. And in this case, it does appear that the intention was uh, to go for Kyiv really at an early stage and also to take the regime, well, the regime's territory, partly already controlled by Russia, in the east, uh, with quite a lot of other things as well. Many of the cruise missile strikes, possibly airstrikes, possibly ballistic missile strikes in other parts of the country, were really to warn the Ukrainians of what was coming. Yes, there were attempts to, to basically damage airfields, munitions dumps, commander commun communication centers, but basically it was a kind of mini shock and awe. It is taking longer, as far as you can tell, than they expected. Uh, we now are into, what, the fourth day uh, of the attempt to go for the center, that is the capital city of Kyiv. It is true that there's at least one other city where there is extremely heavy fighting, but it is also true from what we can tell from outside. And you, I must press this, the whole business of the propaganda is very difficult to decipher, but the indications are there is far more resistance on the Ukraine side um, than the Russian, the Putin regime expected. Um, there are reports, but quite unsupport, quite unconfirmed, that Putin himself is getting very agitated about the very slow progress. So, so a long answer to a short question, but yes, it does not seem to be going as according to plan. On the other hand, if those sectors of the Russian military who have been planning this have thought it through, they will recognize always the possibility of, from their perspective, worst case. And in that situation, they will have some kind of backup. One of the few bits I think of reliable intelligence is that some Russian troops in the southeast of Belarus to basically more or less to the north of Kyiv um, have been brought in earlier than was planned. And that's probably the, the hardest, the most firm information that something is not going exactly as they expected it. One thing I'm particularly baffled about is normally when you get a war, I mean, a war on this scale in particular, you, you prepare the home front, you soften up public opinion. I mean, take the Iraq war, I don't know if it ever, in terms of the, the, the long march to that war, softening up public opinion. It, in Crimea, again, the build-up to the Russian annexation of Crimea, constantly bombarding the Russian population, state television with anti-Ukrainian propaganda and all the rest of it. And one of the reasons people were a bit sceptical about Russia invading Ukraine was there wasn't really that deliberate, constant attempt over months to just bombard people. I mean, you got a late attempt. You got Putin's slightly bizarre speech, his so-called history lesson. What, what do you think is going on there? I just don't, I don't understand why there wasn't this attempt to soften up and build up public opinion. It seems bizarre. I'm not sure. I'm no way an expert in internal uh, Russian society and Russian politics. This is why Ilya is so incredibly interesting uh, this morning. I mean, really uh, sort of eye-opening in many ways. I suspect, and he made the point about, you know, uh, Putin doesn't just talk to his people, if you like, call them the cronies from the military side. He also keeps a hand on what's happening on the domestic side. It may well have been that there were analysts there and policy people who said, uh, you would have to do this for a very long time and we're not sure it would work. On the other hand, you have this extraordinary thing that you have um, Western states really very strongly reporting the actual build-ups and the Americans going in for much more, more openness, more transparency 
about what they themselves knew. So to that extent, it is a sort of a diversion from the norm. And we saw, obviously, before the, the Iraq war in 2003, a very strong element of this with, of course, very strong opposition. And it may well have been that if there'd been a really heavy degree of propaganda, there might have been some small reaction, which, however small, uh, could have been damaging to Putin. But again, I'm rambling a bit. We don't know the answer to this, but I mean, it's, it's a spot on question. On this issue, though, obviously what I try to do in looking at the causes of war is to study what is known about what the, the specialists are saying. And one goes through not so much the general media, but the specialist media. And I was struck by one particular analysis about two or three, about two weeks ago in Jane's Defence Weekly. I think it's by one of their uh, journalists, Tim Ripley. And he was taking a very sort of independent look at the way the Russians were building up forces. And his basically conclusion was that the Russians were not going on the kind of national war footing that you would normally do to think of actually occupying a huge country the size of Ukraine. I mean, Ukraine is larger than France. It has 40 million people. It's very well developed. Uh, and although its army is fairly old fashioned, you have a very determined, uh, basically mood in Ukraine itself. So on that kind of basis, I think what we were seeing was not quite what we got the impression of, uh, in the sense that Ripley was actually arguing strongly um, that Russia certainly had the forces to take uh, the Donbass region, but beyond that, there had to be a lot more happening. Um, so I think, frankly, that we may find, I know this is a guess, if we do get out of this, and we're not out of it by a long shot worldwide, but if we do get out of it, then it may well be that the Russians that actually around Putin and in the military, uh, there was a degree of hubris. Um, they believed that they knew the way forward. And that is not dissimilar uh, to what happened in Iraq. I mean, you remember, you know, when you had all the beginnings of the war against Saddam Hussein, that statue came down in the Baghdad Square within three weeks. Three weeks later, President George W. Bush, in that very big episode, flew out to the aircraft carrier, I think it was Abraham Lincoln, off the Californian coast, and gave the mission accomplished speech. And he was able to reassure Americans that after the utter shock of 9-11, 18 months previously or so, uh, basically, they'd come back against the Taliban and now against Iraq. Um, and essentially, of course, that, well, in, in the case of the Taliban, it lasted 20 years. In the case of Iraq, in some ways, it's still going on. So you, you get this complete, it's a kind of mindset which goes wrong. And that may be the answer when we look at what Russia, but that's, I'm afraid, a long way in the future, some very dangerous times ahead first. It is striking, if we're going to be honest, Western intelligence was actually correct about how this has panned out. And that wasn't, you know, we, we're naturally suspicious, many of us, for good reasons. If yeah. we look at, for example, what happened in Iraq. But that is striking. What they said would happen did happen. Yes, I think that's true. And, you know, uh, and it, it's interesting in a way that what is the explanation for this? I'll, I'll put it this way. It's not so much they got it right, what would happen? Why did they communicate it so much? I mean, why was there all this intelligence about what the, the Russians are doing? Now, in part, we moved into an era, even in the last eight or 10 years, of OSINT, that's open source intelligence. Much more of this information is actually available publicly if you have the money to buy it, because of all the commercial satellite countries, uh, companies and the rest. So it's not so easy to hide up the information as it was before. But beyond that, there is also this view that in fact, it was a deliberate um, stance by the 
uh, American intelligence community to let it be known how much they knew as a way of telling the Russians that we know exactly what you're planning. I don't know whether it worked. I think we now know that you know Putin was absolutely set on his ways. But that might be a sort of uh, explanation, if you wish. Is one of the problems that Russia faces is that in this sort of invasion, you have higher morale in a perverse sense amongst those who are resisting the invasion. They're fighting for their homeland. They're fighting for their independence. They're fighting for their sovereignty. Uh, than amongst an invader who doesn't actually, many of those soldiers know quite why they're there. I've seen some videos of Russian soldiers, young Russian men, probably from poor backgrounds who are being thrown into Ukraine, sobbing um, on camera as they do so, looking completely bewildered. I mean, is that not just a general problem with this sort of invasion? Low, a, a confused invader facing a hostile population, not quite sure why they're there, whilst a very determined local population who are fighting for their survival, I suppose. You certainly do get that, which makes it in some ways uh, significant to examine why was that not the case as far as American troops in Iraq, um, less so with British troops but American troops in Iraq in 2003-2004. You know, if you look at the detail of how um, the troops behaved, essentially they were extremely tough and there were a heck of a lot of civilian casualties almost from the start. But there's one very big difference. It doesn't in any way condone it, but it explains it. And that is the American troops in Iraq, by and large, were convinced that they were fighting back on the war on terror. There's a very strong view, which turned out to be wrong again, that Saddam Hussein's Iraq was in part way responsible for 9-11. And, you know, I've talked to American troops who've, uh, who, who sort of know this from the inside, but essentially it was something of a noble cause by then. It disappeared within years and there, there were all sorts of problems. But right at the start, I mean, when the Iraq war started, it was only 18 months after 9-11. And that we still forget was an incredible shock uh, to the American body politic and, and social as well. Uh, it was far worse than Pearl Harbor in terms of impact. People forget that. And that at least explains why you had this incredibly bitter and violent war. I mean, I looked up the details recently on Iraq body count. The total death toll of civilians is something like 220,000 actually counted. The actual number is much higher. Uh, we're not at that kind of level with uh, Ukraine, thank heavens. But essentially, wars can go terribly wrong. Um, and, and here again, I think it, it comes back to how do we get out of this now? And to some extent, what was Putin's real long-term aim? I mean, what he was trying back. And to, to what extent, as Ilya was saying, uh, you can understand the Russian support for Crimea, but this is something different. And I do think it goes right back, and he touched on this as well, to the experience in Russia of the 1990s. And unless we recognize that, I think it's very difficult to recognize the, the power that Putin still draws from people of his generation and of his ilk. It's a part of the process which I think has got much too little analysis so far. Yeah, I'm going to ask you about that as well. I mean, in terms of, you, you've already made the point that Ukraine is bigger than France. It's yeah. a vast country. Now, it strikes me one of the problems the Russians are facing is to do with supplies, because you have to, obviously they're invading as well from Belarus, Russia, but they have to, they need fuel, they need food, they need water. There's some evidence that, they lack it. They're already kind of going, trying to get, you know, desperately trying to get food and fuel by knocking on the doors of people in Ukraine. I mean, how big a, how big an issue is that? Well, if you look at the sort of the major planning 
which went into similar kinds of, uh, I hate to use the term ventures, if you like. If you look at the huge preparations done for D-Day back in 1944, um, if you look at the way in which the American troops went up the Euphrates on the Tigris at the end of March, beginning of April uh, 2003, at the start of the Iraq War, they came pretty well equipped from the start. Uh, they were massive, basically US Marines, or some of the elite 101st Airborne, I think, and others. And they had sort of their materials with them. But in fact, one of the things that is long forgotten, they made incredible progress up to Baghdad. Three weeks later, as I said, the statue came down. But by the time that was happening, the Americans were finding that their own supply lines in from Basra were already under attack. And at the key time, they were actually having to use quite a proportion I think it's over a quarter of all their combat forces involved in operations in supply route protection. Uh, so here they ran into problems there. They got over it eventually because, of course, they were able to use airlift. But in the case of uh, what's happening in Ukraine, you get the impression that the Russians had simply not thought this through. And you're absolutely right. You know, activities of the size of what the, Amer the Russians are trying to do are incredibly expensive in, in materiel. You know, you look at the the ability to maintain a tank in the field, even the fuel, and that looks like there is a problem developing there. You've got to be cautious because they may well have planned to, to sort of control this, and part of this may be counter-propaganda. But tentatively, I think there is a problem in this direction at present. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I want to you about something which frankly looks absolutely terrifying, and it's thermobaric bombs. I think, I'm not sure if I pronounced that correctly, but that's right. yeah. uh, well, that's something at least. What the hell are they? What are they for? And what do they signify? Well, basically, the, some of the popular press in Britain at the time, perhaps rightly, is saying that the Russians do have these thermobaric weapons available and may well use them. Broadly speaking, um, modern day weaponry, you still have the traditional dumb bombs. And I, I'm sorry to use this term that this is looking at basically means of killing people. Always remember that. But essentially, you have these sort of ordinary bombs. You then have what are known as um, precision guided missiles, missiles and bombs and the rest. And there's been a huge uh, sort of change there. Things are far more accurate. But in parallel with that, you've also had huge improvements. I hate, hate even to use the term improvement in what are known as area impact munitions. The ability to actually kill people or kill, basically attack soft targets over a much wide area. Um, the cluster bomb was the notorious example of this. In fact, before that, of course, was napalm. 
Um, and it's actually the thermobaric weapons are basically a form of aerial impact munitions. Um, the cluster bombs uh, for many countries have actually been banned. And to be fair enough, old George Brown, uh, George uh, Gordon Brown in 2008 was one of the people who pushed it through at the famous uh, Dublin conference. And in fact, Britain does not produce uh, cluster bombs anymore. We used to produce a lot of them. So I'm just saying that something's happened well. Thermobaric weapons, basically what it is, a normal explosion, again, use the term normal if you like, is where you get a, an explosive charge, it is detonated uh, and expands hugely because it is using its own oxidant in the material. A thermobaric weapon is a kind of weapon in which you actually use the oxygen in the air uh, as basically your source of the explosive power along with the explosive itself. So it means that under certain circumstances, they are very much more powerful. They're usually either aerosols, which are then detonated, hydrocarbon, or curiously, things like very finely powdered aluminium with other things, a kind of dust cloud, which actually is hugely explosive. They were developed basically in the Vietnam War. Uh, the prime countries to develop them, we would say typically would be the United States and, uh, and Russia. The reports never confirmed that the Israelis had them at the time of the Beirut uh, War in, nine, in, was it 1982. And it's certainly true that quite a number of countries buy them. For example, although we're getting all this thing about these are Russian weapons, which they are, and they have some very big ones, there are all sorts. I think the United States has five or six different kinds. And in fact, people know about the Hellfire missile, which is fired from drones. Well, that can actually exist in a form. It is, what is it? It's the AGM-114N4. That's the real sort of, uh, you know, anorak stuff. And it's a variant of the, of the Hellfire missile, which actually has a thermobaric charge. And you may be interested to know that Britain actually has bought some and we've used them in Syria. Uh, that came out by accident in a freedom of information request from, Wars, from what was it, War, um, War Drones UK, uh, which actually they, they gave more information that they should have tended. So these weapons are fairly widely used. They are reckoned to be very effective uh, against bunkers, against caves, and I'm afraid to say against cellars and the sort of insides of buildings. Um, they are being used. I suspect the Russians are already using them and may use more. Uh, they basically are just a different way of producing destruction uh, and a particularly nasty way, if any way isn't particularly nasty, I must admit. That's a bad phrase to use. No, I think everyone understands what you mean there. Um, in terms of an occupation of Ukraine, if that's where this ends, I, again, this is where, again, I'm slightly baffled about I don't want to, I'm not trying to do COD psychology here. I find COD psychology of foreign leaders very tedious, but I don't understand what exactly they're thinking in the sense an occupation, an, an indefinite Russian occupation of Ukraine does not seem remotely sustainable. So what, how do you think that would pan out if they managed to overwhelm eventually through however means Ukraine's military, they managed to take the capital, they impose a puppet regime. How could that possibly be sustainable? Well, I think what they planned for, and I mean, you know, it may well be in several years' time, really good, independently-minded analysts will be able to ask answer questions like that. Uh, if you can, can take a punt at it from what one knows about Putin's behaviour, I think what was expected was that Ukraine would not offer much opposition. And the plan, therefore, was really threefold. One is immediately take a lot more temp temp ter uh, territory back in the east of the country, 
Secondly, um, to open up more transit routes, particularly into Crimea, possibly get the link between Crimea and Donbass really firm. And thirdly, most importantly, to go for Kyiv and to bring about the fall of the government. I think the Russians would have known full well, unless they were sort of militarily incompetent, that if you actually try to occupy the country with the leadership still intact, then it wouldn't work. So I suspect what the way they expected was that the regime itself, the government in Kyiv, uh, would actually fall and therefore opposition to Russia would tend to, if not evaporated, subside. And then it, would, it wouldn't even be possible to actually occupy the whole, it wouldn't even be necessary to occupy the whole of the country. And maybe primarily they would have people to, to the east of Dnieper. But essentially the long-term aim would have been to have a full client regime in the country. Because you've got to look at this in the broader terms. What is Putin about in this episode? I think that what he wanted to do, it goes right back to what you and Ilya were talking on earlier on, almost back to the sort of the Tsarist Russia. You actually have to recognize that what was probably the final option would have been to have two huge buffer states to the west of Russia. One would be the modest-sized Belarus with a small population. The other will be much more important, very large Ukraine with several times the population, two client regimes. And those would be regimes between uh, Russia itself and essentially the West, NATO. I think probably that if I remember rightly, I've not heard whether it's happened. Today uh, in Belarus, they're running uh, basically, I think it's a, re a, a referendum on whether Belarus should accept the stationing of Russian nuclear weapons on its territory. I would imagine that if it is run today, it will pass. I suspect myself that that is something that Putin would have had in mind in the longer term in, in uh, basically in Ukraine. In other words, you have these two countries forming the cushion against NATO, both of them with Russian forward-based nuclear weapons on board. And that would basically really, well, it would certainly upset the current security architecture of Europe uh, to Putin's advantage, which is why coming back, I mean, what is happening now almost by day is how long it is going to take to actually to demolish the regime, to use that horrible phrase, because it looks like it's proving very difficult. And meanwhile, um, lots of support is coming in from Western states, including um, unexpectedly from, from uh, Germany. Most significant, far more significant in my view, uh, is two things. At one level, the very cautious neutrality that India is speaking, far more important, uh, the decision by the uh, Chinese to abstain in that Security Council vote. That suggests that basically Xi in Beijing is increasingly unhappy with, uh, with Putin. And just remember that although uh, Russia is a superpower in the, in the nuclear side, it is not in other respects. Russia is, what, number 12th in the list of GDP. Um, essentially, it is really fairly down the list GDP of Russia is actually no more than that of Italy or Spain and less than that of Britain, far less than Germany. And I think it's a small fraction of either China or the United States. So essentially, if Putin loses the solid support from Xi, I think he has serious internal problems, probably more so than if you do get the, uh, the opposition coming within Russia. I mean, you mentioned, of course, Germany abandoning its 
previous stance. Uh, I mean, that was partly a legacy of World War II, wasn't it? So given, I suppose, the sense of national guilt, uh, you know, there have been, of course, two invasions from Germany eastwards, one of which was genocidal. And as a result, Germany came under a lot of criticism for not providing weapons. But that was the historical context for that, wasn't it? But what do you think the long-term impact of this is going to be? However, the dust settles, it's very difficult in the current in the, in the here and now to, to say how that will settle in terms of, I suppose, what you could describe as the balance of power between the great powers. I mean, you've noted Russia as a superpower in the military sense, not in the economic sense, but obviously it's, it's nuclear status does give it a certain great yeah. power status. Yeah. What, how is this going to end? You know, how will this settle? It's not going to be like the cold war because there you had, you know, various movements across the world and regimes which allied themselves to the Soviet union um, there are you know anti-colonial movements and so on. There's no reason for that to happen in this context. So what? How does this all settle? What do you think the kind of long-term global order will look like in the aftermath? I, we we don't know, and I wouldn't begin to try and sort of have a guess. Uh, certainly, things are changing. It will depend very much on how it in it ends uh, and whether Putin survives in power. If he does, then this is going to be drawn out and very difficult. And you're going to get a very bitter uh, long-term insurgency against Russian occupation. If it was to end in some way, well, I think there are probably two or three things to remember. Uh, one of which is China is a growing power and the polarity of the world is changing pretty rapidly. Um, the second thing to remember is that we're talking obviously about this terrible conflict. The wider issue worldwide is always uh, a combination of three things. One is the widening disparities of wealth and poverty, the creation of extraordinary narrow elite, incredibly rich elite. The second is limits to growth. We're up at them now. And basically, climate breakdown changes everything. And third, I'm afraid, the tendency always to see security in terms of traditional military terms. I think those are three paradigms which are actually failing simultaneously. But those are the really the, the big drivers or what's going to be happening in the world in the next 10 to 20 years. And we have to recognize that even at this time, um, I'd add one other thing, which again, I think we tend to forget. There are already tremendous victors who are gaining from this conflict. It's been an absolute incredibly good conflict for them. And that is basically for the world's armaments community. I mean, essentially, you know, Shakespeare had it right. What was it? Um, uh, Act two, Henry V, prologue, now thrive the armorers. This is not meaning they're evil people at all, but what it does mean, it's a part of society and the way things work at present in which we really have recourse to military solutions at much to an earlier stage. And we, I mean, the global community, I'm not sort of looking at any one group, but that is one final thing to remember. But we have these much bigger issues, particularly, I would say, climate break down ahead of us. Uh, and that's going to be even more difficult to handle than what we have now. One just... Small thing, you mentioned a sort of Russia as a superpower. It is a nuclear superpower, not a conventional superpower. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, my one worry is if there had been any kind or is any kind of shooting war between NATO and Russia in the conventional sense, NATO almost certainly would be able to prevail, in which case uh, Russia does not have a no third use policy. And that's my sort of the one, if you like, thing that worries you at the back of the mind. NATO seems to know that really full well. In fact, you even get government ministers. They won't use the term nuclear, but they say the consequences 
of an east-west war would, de would be devastating. They won't use the term nuclear, but that's what they're saying, really. Well, be before I actually, I'm sorry, just obviously alarmed as, as as many people are just even by that discussion. Because I was before I asked the final, and there's something else which is sensitive, which I want to I want to ask as well. Um, I didn't ask about the prospects of a nuclear conflict because I just thought it'd be such a you know unlikely scenario. It's not even worth contemplating the full horror. Do you see any prospects of this sort of confrontation escalating to a very dangerous point that did, of course, happen during the Cuban Missile Crisis, given what we know, for example, about Putin? What What do you think? Because I, I just heard that, obviously, and I think a lot of people probably stopped uh, and froze yeah. just because the very idea of even discussing it is so alarming and seems unlikely. Yeah, wouldn't yeah. It? I think as of now, the risk is very low. And it is mainly because uh, people, at least on the NATO side, and I suspect also some in the Russian military, know full well how dangerous this is. Uh, but the risk is there, and this is why this kind of conflict, always between two nuclear powers, is such a worry. It's why, you know, Western diplomats were very worried when there have been confrontations between Pakistan and India. It is there at the back of my mind. I mean, if, if you look at it in very broad terms, we're trying to wrestle as a human species with two huge problems. One is the ability to destroy ourselves, and the other is the ability to destroy the environment. Destroying ourselves would mostly have come from uh, a nuclear exchange. And we've got out of that almost, but we still have a legacy. And it's intriguing to look back on the Cold War years when the Cold War ended, when you had people like Robert McNamara, the uh, American Secretary of, of Defense under Kennedy, and people who were considered hawks started saying we've got to get rid of nuclear weapons and that partly stemmed from what they learned about what was really happening in the cuban missile crisis when each side misread what the other side was planning so in other words i think that was a huge lost opportunity at the end of the cold war to go much farther uh, no i don't want to sort of cause huge concern because i don't think we're facing that kind of problem now i think there's hopefully enough wisdom to avoid that particularly on the nato side which i think there is the worry about escalation and not to nuclear uh, is another thing. There's a, a, an acronym, AIM, A -I -M, which stands for Accidents, Incidents and Mavericks. When you have a very tricky crisis situation with very powerful forces, it's always a possibility that things can happen almost by accident or by maverick, people deliberately stirring it up. And that's the more, the less stable thing at present. And this is why I think the next few days are going to still be very tricky. And it's going to be even more difficult in a way if it proves more problematic for Putin to actually maintain control and get what he wants. I suppose it brings you to the one point which will go down like a, a, a basically like a, a cold shower with people. And that is this is actually the time when it is crucially important to keep the uh, avenues of um, uh, communication open. Uh, if you actually were to say that, you know, the door is still open to major serious negotiations. And I think, you know, uh, some people in Ukraine are actually recognizing it's a very difficult thing. This is not appeasement. This actually is common sense uh, to recognize that if, for example, things do appear to be going wrong for Putin, the more chance, maybe not for him, he couldn't take it, but for others to say there is a way out of this, a compromise might be possible. 
then they have to grab it. Now, as I say, that would be a very unpopular thing to say by, for many people, but that is the reality. This is a far too dangerous situation uh, not to recognise that that is a very important facet. I mean, finally on that, because we've been very lucky to have you for, 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 such, a, for su such a long period with your absolutely brilliant expertise. Um, this is another, again, sensitive in that sense, because right. even discussing this opens the door to people being accused of being apologists. I think that's very dangerous, but you do get in an international crisis like this, anyone vaguely critical of Western foreign policy tends to get tarred with a certain brush. Now, Putin is obviously a greater, greater Russian chauvinist um, who as we noted, is is kind of driven by some of the same impulses of Tsarist Russia, domination over peoples who do not want it. Um, and I don't for one second believe that uh, Putin has the security concerns with the Russian people uh, front and centre, because I do believe that there is very good evidence suggesting that in 1999, elements of the Russian state were involved in the apartment bombings which were used to as a pretext to invade Chechnya. We don't know that for certain, but there's a lot of evidence to suggest that. What I am interested to know is, is it the case that, which you've already noted, the sense of humiliation that a lot of Russian people felt in the 1990s when Russia was brought to its knees, it suffered a collapse in life expectancy amongst men you would basically expect in a war. Uh, its living standards collapsed. So did Ukraine, for that matter, it should be yeah. noted. Ukraine actually was one of the more prosperous elements of the Soviet Union. Its GDP is now lower than it was in 1990, which is quite yeah. striking. But is it the case that the expansion of NATO eastwards, and again, I need to be careful here, it's very understandable that there was actually a lot of support amongst various Eastern European states, amongst the population to join NATO because they fear Russia for very understandable historic reasons. In the context of Russia, has that expansion led to a sense of resentment and grievance that a greater Russian chauvinist like Putin is able to exploit? Long question, but I need to be careful. That's why I'm asking. In this yeah, system. no, I think you're probably right. Uh, I mean, if it any way could have been found in the 1990s to make a transition which did not, in a sense, uh, well, basically treat Russians with contempt. And I mean, this was not true of the West as a whole. It's not true of people across NATO as a whole. But there's a very strong um, strand of what you might call neoconservative thinking, uh, which was behind the whole idea. I mean, we called it turbo capitalism or hyper capitalism. And essentially, this was the way forward. I mean, it, it's a, a variant of the idea of the end of history. This is the way the world's going to be from now on, uh, right down to the idea of, you know, the new American century, which, which was very powerful uh, when Bush came to power. So I think that there was a, a terrible a uh, mistake was made in a sense, uh, which has really played into the hands, not so much of Russians as a whole, and this is where I'd love to be able to talk to Ilya more about this, but I sense that among the older Russians of Putin's generation, that is where it counts. The people who are actually experiencing that in their early and mid-careers in the 1900s, which was in the 1990s, sorry, which was an appalling period. So yes, I think that is relevant in a sense. This is how things can sort of come back to haunt you in that what you thought from your own position was perfectly reasonable in the 1990s was having effects which could, you could not envisage would cause or add to further problems of the future. Now, as you say, this doesn't in any way diminish the danger from Putin himself, his own psychology, but in a way, I think it enables him uh, to do more uh, maybe even to an extent for him, he himself 
um, to think outside the box more than otherwise might be the case. So yes, I mean, uh, reluctantly, I think there were mistakes made there. They are not the full explanation. You can't you know, blame that period for what has happened since, but it was part and parcel, yes. Paul, that really was fantastic. We're so lucky to have you once again. And the least I can do is to put you in touch with Ilya because I know you mentioned that you'd like to discuss further. So I'll, I'll, I'll drop you both an email to uh, to loop you in. But I've just been seeing the comments and people were absolutely fascinated and so grateful for your commentary, which is brilliant. Oh, absolutely so much. I've learned a huge amount. And I think anybody who wants to understand exactly what's going on, uh, needs to either watch or listen to to what you've said. So I'm sure people will spread it. If you've watched or listened, spread it far and wide. Make sure everyone hears this superb analysis. Paul, thank you so, so much as ever. Really appreciate it. Thank I you. Use, I owe you several points. For your work. Yeah. Uh, well, it's hit and miss. Mine's hit and miss. Yours less so. Uh, but it's, <laughs> it's a huge honour, Paul. Thanks so much. Take care and I'll speak to you soon. Thank you. Take care. Uh, fantastic stuff. Again, very lucky to have such such brilliant guests. Um, before we go, there's just a few things I wanted to just talk about in terms of some of, uh, for example, the coverage that we've seen. Uh, some of which I think is disturbing, to be honest with you. Now, I'm going to bring this up as an example of that. This is a clip from a, this a US news clip. Let me just bring it up. Now with the Russians marching in, it's changed uh, the calculus entirely. Uh, tens of thousands of people have tried to uh, flee the city. There will be many more. People are hiding out in bomb shelters. But this isn't a place, with all due respect, um, you know, like Iraq or Afghanistan that has seen conflict raging for decades. You know, this is a relatively civilized uh, relatively European, I have to choose those words carefully too, uh, city where you wouldn't expect that or hope that it's going to happen. So it's partly human nature, but they are not in denial. Well, I don't think he did choose his words carefully, or if he did, he certainly told on himself. That's just racism. Sorry, let's just say it as it is. What's he trying to say there? That this is more shocking because this is a civilized country, unlike, say, Iraq. I mean, we've seen this again. Daniel Hannan, who's a conservative, um, former member of the European Parliament, who wrote, they seem so like us. That's what makes it so shocking. War is no longer something visited upon impoverished and remote populations. It can happen to anyone. Let's be clear. What is happening to Ukraine is absolutely horrific. It is shocking. It is a criminal and unjust war of aggression waged by a kleptocratic, authoritarian, gangster regime in Moscow. No question. And there are civilians right now who are having hell rained upon them by Putin's military forces. Many of them themselves, it should be said, are bewildered working class Russians being thrown into a war, which I'm sure many of them are not particularly happy about. It is something you can say, which I just have, without attempting to dehumanize people for example, people who are brown-skinned, people who are Arab, who have suffered horrific atrocities, yes, often at the hands of Western powers, like in Yemen, which was, until Afghanistan, which is being starved to death by the West, by the way, uh, like Yemen, which is having British and American bombs rained upon it, including a school bus full of little children who were incinerated on their way back from a picnic. You do not have to dehumanize people. And, you know, it's not to say, and I hate this framing of, well, why don't, you know, people should, this is terrible, people are focusing so much in Ukraine when there are other people who don't get the attention they deserve. The question, the issue should be, 
everyone should get the level of attention that Ukraine is rightly getting as it is suffering this horror. And you can make that case with humanity and compassion without stripping people who aren't white or European of their humanity, often when they suffer terrible atrocities, which I'm afraid to say are committed in the name of many of us, which is why there is the need for a consistent, humane approach to international issues. That yes, we do have more of a say as Western citizens over the actions of our own governments, because we can protest and put pressure on them in ways we can't uh, over other countries. Although, as we've seen in the case of Russia, uh, actually, there is pressure points that can be applied because Russian money is a w dirty li money linked to the Russian regime is is absolutely, you know, in this capital, London, where I'm sitting, it's a wash with it, including the coffers, it should be said, of our ruling Conservative Party. But you can make these arguments consistently, as I've tried to do just now, without stripping anyone of their humanity. And that's a very important point, which I think needs to be made because I was, I've been disgusted by some of that commentary. That clip was abhorrent. It's the sort of thing which I think should be studied in future as indicative of often very chauvinistic and racist attitudes, which are just accepted as background noise in many Western countries in terms of our attitudes, you know, the so-called hierarchy of death, as it's called, where, where, where certain lives are relegated because of the color of their skin and where they happen to live and, on the, and, and, and whose violence they're on the receiving end of. I think that's a very important point uh, to make. Um, another point that I think is also relevant to this as well, which is the issue of Ukrainian refugees. Now, as has been pointed out here by Colin Yeo, you couldn't make it up. Home Office put out a briefing today explaining how refugees like Ukrainians traveling through third countries like Poland and other adjacent countries to the UK should be sent back whence they came. Now, the Home Office, which is in charge of issues to do with immigration in Britain, had the chutzpah, the cheek, the front to put up the Ukrainian flag flapping you know, proudly in solidarity with the people of Ukraine. The same at Home Office, which is not providing safe routes for refugees from Ukraine. That is a government which does not care about people in Ukraine. Obviously not. If the government of, you know, if the government of this country cared about the people who are now suffering this barbaric violence at the hands of Putin's regime, then they would provide safe routes for Ukrainians to come here. And they're not doing that. And do you know what? They really are pandering there to the worst elements of British society because the polling suggests there is very broad support for accepting Ukrainian citizens, including amongst voters of our ruling Conservative Party, who, let's be honest, often are not that well disposed to accepting refugees. So I think that's a really important point which we also need to make. Another point, and this goes back again to consistency. This is very important. There was a tweet by David Miliband. I had to say, I'm glad I read this tweet before I'd had my breakfast at the time or lunch or whatever, dinner probably. Vital thread. This is the age of impunity in action. Invasion equals breach of the UN Charter. Killing of civilians equals breach of international law. Wars without law return to dark ages. Where's that guy get off? Where's he get off? What's he thinking? He, saw, he voted for the Iraq war. Which let's just so let's just note that again, uh, invasion equals breach of the UN Charter. Correct, he's absolutely correct. Killing of civilians equals breach of international law. Does he remember the late Kofi Annan, the UN Secretary General at the time of the Iraq War, who said the Iraq War was illegal and breached UN Charter? 
Now, some will go, oh, don't, why do you have to bring all this up? Oh, can't we just focus on the issue at hand? I am focusing on the issue at hand, which is, again, about how great powers violate international law. And every time a great power, whether it be the US, whether it be Russia, does that, they destabilize the order and set a precedent, which then others can freely exploit. Uh, you know, the idea you could be someone who votes for a war, which the UN General Secretary who's in a pretty good position to adjudicate, I would say, says that war is in violation of international law and the UN Charter. You know, and then to say, well, you know, this is, uh, to quote him, war without law equals return to dark ages. You can't say things like that when your own record is part of the problem. It's just absolutely, unbelievably outrageous. Now, the final point that I want to make, and this is a very, very important point. I actually want to make an apology this is very important because I believe in accountability. I often criticize others when they say things which are stupid. And what I said was exceptionally stupid and wrongheaded and insensitive and just wrong. Let me just explain. So I shared an article from the Financial Times by Jeffrey Sachs, which said the US should compromise on NATO in order to save Ukraine. Now, I should note, Jeffrey Sachs is not somebody who I would <laughs> generally agree with. Uh, he's what you would describe as a neoliberal. In fact, he's got his own questions to answer because he was instrumental in the so-called economic shock therapy, which Eastern European countries went through after the collapse of the Soviet bloc and the Stalinist economies, which then um, existed. So he worked as an advisor with several Eastern European governments. He did make the point that if war comes, this he wrote this article before the war, Putin would, of course, deserve the blame and global opprobrium. Russia's threats are thuggish and dangerous. The point he did make was about NATO expansion to the east and made the point that certain Clinton officials opposed it because that would that would lead to certain amounts of resentment within Russia itself, um, that pledges were made, informal pledges. There's a lot of discussion over that to a large degree. He said, Russia has long feared invasions from the West, whether by Napoleon, Hitler, or latterly uh, NATO, uh, and said, for this reason, cooler and wiser US foreign policy strategists, including Bill Clinton's Defense Secretary, William Perry, the great statesman, diplomat, George Kennan, and former ambassador to the Soviet Union, J Jack Matlock, argued that NATO enlargement to the East after the demise of the USSR was unnecessary, reckless, and provocative. So I did a couple of tweets. I did a thread, actually, about this. So my first tweet said, this piece is going to upset a lot of people, but it's got a lot of good sense in it. If Russia invades Ukraine, that's a crime, and it's on Putin, and Ukraine has the right to resist. That doesn't mean not attempting a compromise to prevent mass death. The second tweet has rightly caused a lot of anger, in which I said... Putin is full of greater Russian chauvinism, as his speech this week underlined. Sorry, Putin is full of greater Russian chauvinism, as his speech this week underlined, and Russia has been invaded repeatedly from the West, including a genocidal war within living memory. There should have been an attempt to craft a neutral buffer zone after the Cold War. So what I was trying to do was sum up partly the arguments I just said there in the article. What I wrote there was inhumane. I mean, buffer zone is not how you should describe countries which contain people, tens of millions of people, who have the right to determine their own future. I sounded like some sort of imperialist playing risk with the people of Europe. That's not how you discuss international issues. It's not how you speak um, about human beings. So I'm very, very sorry. I shouldn't have tweeted that. I deleted it pretty quickly. But nonetheless, I think a proper apology is in order. I think the point that I would make is, because I should make it clear, I've always been a very, very staunch opponent 
such as I can be as someone in, in the West of Vladimir Putin. So I wrote, for example, back in 2016, Putin is a human rights abusing oligarch. The British left must speak out, in which I spoke about the horrific uh, regime which exists in Putin and which is a kleptocratic regime, which I have to say has been the godfather of many right-wing populist movements in Europe and in the United States. I've also written, for example, about the crimes committed by Putin's forces in Syria and criticised those who failed to speak out, uh, you know, and how Russian rhetoric at the time echoed that of the war and terror, the dead of Aleppo, not civilians, but terrorists, that civilian deaths are either inventions or entirely the responsible rebel militia, that civilians are ill, are all rejoicing at their liberation. Uh, So I suppose the point which I do think obviously can be discussed, is not about Putin, who I regard as a greater Russian chauvinist, who I do believe in 1999, the Russian state, when he was attempting to become the replacement to Boris Yeltsin, had a direct hand in apartment bombings, which were then blamed on terrorists as a pretext to invade Chechnya. There's a lot of evidence to suggest uh, that is the case. Uh, so Putin is a monster, in my view, a greater Russian chauvinist who wants domination over peoples who do not want it. What I'm interested in, and the point that I was trying to make very badly, was why has there been so much resentment within Russian society that Vladimir Putin has been able to exploit? In the 90s, Boris Yeltsin not someone I'm a fan of, presided over a government in which the economy collapsed and oligarchs just stole Russian uh, assets and the Russian economy, looted the Russian economy. Um, That, you know, that was not a hostile state to the West at all in the 1990s. And obviously that has changed. Putin was embraced by the West. He was someone who Tony Blair and New Labour lauded. MI6 has apologised for helping Putin come to power by doing a big photo op with Tony Blair. Uh, And since then, it has to be said, um, Blair has called for an alliance with Putin against international terrorism. Uh, And and he's not the only New Labour figure. The former as well, Gerhard Schroeder, the former SPD third-way chancellor, is also someone who's... uh, I mean, he's a direct mains now. He's a Russian gas lobbyist and he's coming up with all sorts of apologism uh, for the Russian regime. My issue is, why is there that sense of humiliation and resentment which could be exploited? Now, in terms of NATO, I just, I'm not somebody who supports NATO. I'll be very clear about that. I know that puts me in a small minority. I put that in the same box as the monarchy. I don't support the monarchy either. It's not a battle I generally fight because I think issues like public ownership or tax justice are popular issues where we should, you know, direct our resources as people on the left. NATO, I don't regard as a defender of human rights and democracy, otherwise it wouldn't have Turkey as a member state as it wages a war of aggression against uh, the Kurdish population. So when people, when when I say, well, I prefer Eastern European states not to join NATO, well, I don't support NATO, um, even though that puts me in a very small minority. If there was a referendum in Britain, I wouldn't support NATO membership. And you know, when I looked at the model of, say, Switzerland as being neutral, that's what I was trying to talk about in terms of Eastern Europe. I understand why people in Eastern Europe have a different view on that, because their view is, however much people like myself talk about the horrors of Western imperialism and the consequences in Iraq and Libya, for example, in more recent times, they fear more the threat from Russia. That's why many people in Eastern Europe do support NATO membership. It should be noted in Ukraine public opinion was opposed to NATO membership, but the actions of the Putin regime have 
not least now, driven much of Ukrainian society into the direction of supporting NATO membership. So I think we can talk about these issues and their complexities in a way that is emotionally intelligent. That's not what I did. I got it completely wrong. You don't talk about people and independent states as buffer zones. They're sovereign people who have the right to determine their own future. So I just wanted to make that apology and try to explain my position in a better and more humane way. That is enough from me. If you wish to, if you wish to, I speak now like a 19th century poet. Um, if you wish to watch our new documentary, I would love it. I, I mean, I feel unfortunate because we, we put a lot of work into it, but there's a massive war going on, obviously, which people are focusing on. But it's about uh, the strike of Coventry bin workers, which unite the National Union, obviously, has threatened to pull the plug on funding for the Labour Party over. Um, and it's about the cost of living crisis that is affecting working class people, that about working class people, in this case, fighting back and about because they're striking it's a Labour council, the failure of Labour to offer leadership and a, you know, kind of inspiring alternative, I suppose. Uh, so do check it out. I think it's very important that working class people handed the megaphone. It's not a long documentary. It's only about 15 minutes. So do check it out on the YouTube channel. You make it possible on patreon.com forward slash Owen Jones 84. That's how we have brilliant, that brilliant team who make it on union wages. Thanks to you. And now I am, um, I keep talking about how I'm finishing my book, which I haven't finished yet. We've got lots of documentaries to come because of your uh, support. Um, Atad has actually just said the geographic position of former Eastern Bloc countries would have always been an issue as some countries moved away from the Russian sphere of influence um, and into the EU sphere, not to absolve blame, but provide context. Yeah, and the reason I think this is important, and again, I'm someone, by the way, who I, I just think generally people should not make comparisons with the Nazis because Nazism was such a specific type of totalitarian genocidal horror. So, for example, the Putin regime is bad enough on its own terms. You don't have to belittle the horror of Nazism by making comparisons, which I think are very ill-judged. What I would say is we do look back at, say, the Versailles Treaty treaty and think that was, I think, generally regarded as a very bad historical mistake, not because... Well, obviously, apologists for the Nazis who made a big song and dance, obviously, the humiliation of the Versailles Treaty, but that the sense of humiliation and grievance amongst the German population uh, was something that the Nazis could then exploit. And I think if we can do that about that, then we are surely able to talk about what happened to Russia after the end of the Cold War and how a sense of humiliation and grievance fed into something which a greater Russian chauvinist reactionary like Putin, could exploit. I do think it's possible to have these discussions without calling people an apologist for Putin, which I, I clearly am not. I also would note, for example, um, Zara Sultana, the Labour MP, has received death threats calling her Putin's whore because of her position. She's not an apologist for Putin. And people using that kind of rhetoric to suggest um, that their, uh, you know, that their um, fifth columnist of foreign powers is dangerous and whips up very dangerous sentiments. That's enough for me, everyone. Uh, we've got lots of interviews and so on to come. Brilliant guest today. I learned a huge amount. I hope you did as well. Uh, do press like and subscribe. Leave a comment below. This is now going up, obviously, where most people watch it after the show. So do leave a comment and I will read them and try and respond to some. I'll start trying to respond to comments. Lots of love, everyone. Take care of yourselves and I will see you very soon.
thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you found that informative, educational, uh, interesting, and I certainly did. Uh, do support us on Patreon to keep the show on the road, uh, forward slash Jones 84 Leave us some stars, that'd be nice. Spread the word. And I look forward to speaking to you soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.